World of the Mad, Part 1 He walked slowly through the curling purple mists, feeling the ground roll and quiver under his feet, hearing the deep-voiced rumble of shifting strata far underground. There were voices in the fog, singing in high, unhuman tones, and no man had ever learned what it was that sang. For could the wind utter sounds so elfishly sweet, almost words that haunted you with half-understanding of something you had forgotten and needed desperately to remember? A face floated through the swirling mist. It was not human, but it was very beautiful, and it was blind. He looked away as it mouthed voiceless murmurs at him. Somewhere a crystal tree was chiming, a delicate pizzicato of glass-like leaves vibrating against each other. The man listened to it, and to the low muttering of the earth, for those at least were real, and he was not at all sure whether the other things were there or not. Even after two hundred years, he wasn't sure. He went on through the mist. Flowers grew up around him, great fragile laceries of shining crystalline petals that budded and bloomed and died, even as he walked by. Some of them reached hungrily for him, but he sidestepped their groping mouths with the unthinking ease of long habit. Compasses didn't work on Tanith, and only a few men could even operate a radio direction finder. But Langdon knew his way and walked steadily ahead. His sense of direction kept rotating crazily. It insisted he was going the wrong way. No, now the house lay over to the right. No, the left, and a few paces straight up. But by now he had compensated for that. He didn't need eyes or kinesthetic sense to find his way home. There was a new singing in the violet air. Langdon checked his stride, with a sudden eerie prickling along his spine. The mist eddied about him, thick and blinding. But now the city was growing out of it. He saw the towers and streets and thronging airways come raggedly into being. Suddenly he stood in the middle of the city. It was complete this time, not the few fragmentary glimpses he ordinarily had. The mist flowed the ghostly spires and pylons, but somehow he could see anyway. The city lay for kilometers ahead. It was not a human city. It lay under three hurtling moons, lit only by their brilliant silver. But it lived. It pulsed with life about him. The shining dwellers soared past and seemed to leave a trail of little sparks, luminous against the night. They were not men, the old folk of Tanith, but they were beautiful. There was no sound. Langdon stood in a well of silence while the city lay around him, and he thought that perhaps he was the ghost, alone and excommunicated on a world which lay beyond even the dreams of man. But that was nonsense, he thought angry with himself. It was simply that temporal mirages transmitted only light, not sound. He was here, now, alive, and the city was dust these many million years. Two dwellers flew past him, male and female, with arms linked, laughing soundlessly into each other's golden eyes. The male's great glowing wings brushed through Langdon's body, he stood briefly in a shower of whirling light motes, and they didn't heed him. They didn't know he was there. 
They were only for each other, those two, and he was a ghost out of an unreal and unthinkably remote future. The mirage faded. Slowly, in bits and patches, it dissolved back into the purple fog. He was alone again. He shivered and hastened his steps homeward. The mist began to break, raggedly, as he came out of the forest. He went by a lake of life, with only a passing glance at the strangeness of the new shapes that seethed and bubbled, rose out of its slime and took shifting form, and sank back into chemical disintegration. There was always something new, grotesque and horrible, and sometimes eerily lovely, to be seen at such a place. But spontaneous generation was an old story to Langdon by now, and Eileen was waiting. He came out on the brow of a steep hill that slanted down into the little cup-like valley where he had his dwelling. The hills were blue around it, blue with grass that tomorrow night might be gold or green or grey and the sky was currently blood-red. A grove of feather-like trees hid the house, swaying where there was no wind, and murmuring to each other in their own language, and a few winged things hovered darkly overhead. For a moment Langdon paused there, savouring the richness of it. This was his home, his land. Back on Terra they had forgotten the fullness that came with belonging to the earth, but the men who colonized among the stars remembered. Looking back, Langdon thought that the real instability and alienness was in the solar system. Men had no roots there, and it was a secret woe in them that made them feverish and restless, eager to taste from all cups, but shuddering away from draining any one. Antanith, thought Langdon, with a quiet sort of exultation. A man drank his cup to the bottom, and there were many cups, or, if only one, it was never the same, and could never be emptied. For a man on Tanith did not grow old. Suddenly he stiffened, and a psyche feeder swooped low to absorb his furiously radiated nervous energy. The reaction of it eddied in his mind as a chilling fear. Angrily, without having to think about it, he drove the creature off with a jaggedly pulsed mental vibration and remained standing and listening. Someone had screamed. It came again, distorted by the wavering air, hardly recognizable to one who had not had time to adjust to Tanith. And it was Eileen's voice. Joe! 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 Help! He ran, scrambling down the unstable hillside with his mist-wet cloak flapping behind him. A sword plant slashed at him with the steely leaves. He swirled and went on down into the valley running, leaping, a bounding black shadow against the burning sky. Static electricity discharged in crackling blue sheets as he tore through the grove, hissing against his insulating clothes and stinging his face and hands. Something floated through the dark air, long and supple and dripping slime, grimacing at him with its horrible wet mouth, another illusion or mirage, he thought, somewhere in the back of his mind. They no longer bothered him, in fact, he'd have missed them if they never shot up again. But Eileen. The cottage nestled under the tall whispering trees, a peak-roofed stone building in the ancient style that Langdon had thought most appropriate to the enchanted planet. There was little of terror about it after its century and a half of existence. 
It was covered with fire vines over which danced the seeming of little flames. Luminous flying creatures nestled against the doorway, and he had never found the cause of the dim, sweet singing he had always heard around it. The door stood ajar, and Eileen was sobbing inside. Langdon came in and found her huddled on the couch before the fireplace, trembling so that it seemed her body must be shaken apart, and crying, crying. He sat down and put his arms about her and let her cry herself out. Then he remained for a while, stroking her hair and saying nothing. He bit her lip to keep it steady. Her voice was like a small child's, high and toneless and frightened. It bit, she said. It was an illusion, he murmured. No, it bit at me, and its eyes were dead. It came out of the floor there, and it was all in rags. You had an illusion fighting you, he said. A psyche feeder flying nearby caught your increased nervous output, drew on it, and that of course frightened you still more. They're easy to drive away, Eileen. They don't like certain pulse patterns. You just think at them the way I showed you. It was real, she insisted quietly with something of a child's puzzlement that anything should have wanted to hurt her. It was black, but there were greys and browns and red too, and it was ragged. He went over to the cupboard and got out a darkly glowing bottle and poured two full glasses. This'll help, he said, trying hard to smile at her. Prosit. I shouldn't, said Eileen, still shakily, but with some return of saneness. Junior. Junior won't take harm from a glass of wine, said Langdon. He sat down beside her again, and they clinked goblets and drank. The fire wavered ruddily before them filling the room with warm, restless light, and with dancing shadows from which Eileen looked away. I'll get an electronic range installed soon, said Langdon, trying to fill the silence with trivia. It can be convenient for you cooking on an ancient-style stove. I thought they didn't work on tennis. Electronics, I mean, she answered with the same effort of ordinariness. Not at first, with the different laws prevailing here. In the first few decades, we were forced back to the old chemical techniques like fires. That's one reason so few colonists ever came or stayed long if they did come. But bit by bit, little by little, we're learning the scientific laws and applying them. They've had all the standard household equipment available here for a century, I guess, but by that time I'd already built this place and liked my own things, fires and stoves and all the rest, too well to change. But now that I've got a wife to do my housekeeping, I ought to provide her with conveniences. In fact, I should have done so right away. It isn't that, Joe, she said. I'd have squawked long ago if those little things made any difference. I like handling things myself rather than turning them over to some robot. It's fun to cook and get wood, but Joe, it's no fun when a thing rises out of the steam and screams at you. It's no fun when electric sparks jump over the house, and all of a sudden there's only fear. The whole place is choked with fear. She shut it closer against him. This place is haunted, she whispered. The laws of nature are a little different, he answered as calmly as he could. But they are still laws. Tanith seems like a chaos, governed by living spirits, and most of them malignant, only because you don't see the regularity. Its pattern is too different from what we're used to. Terror herself must have seemed that way to primitive man before he discovered order in nature. 
a scientist here who's slowly finding out the answers. Talk to old Jang sometime. He can tell you more about it than I. But I can see the order now, a little of it, and it's a richer, deeper thing than the rest of the universe. And you live forever. He gripped her shoulders and looked into her wide eyes. He had to expel the demons of terror from her. A woman five months pregnant could go on this way. He was suddenly shocked by how thin she had grown, and she had never stopped shivering under his hands. You won't grow old, he said slowly. We'll be together forever, Eileen, and our children won't die either. She looked away from him, and sudden bitterness twisted her mouth. I wonder, she said thinly, whether immortality is worth having on this planet. Suddenly she stiffened, and her lips opened to scream again. Langdon forgot the hurt of her words and looked wildly about the room, but there was only the furniture and the firelight and the weaving shadows. Inside the blood-red windows the room was sane and real and human. Eileen shrank against him. It's over there, she gasped, over there in that corner, creeping closer. Langdon's face grew bleak, and there was a desolation rising in him. Illusions of one sort or another were part of daily life on Tanith, but they had reality in that they were produced by physical processes, and more than one person could perceive them, but hallucinations were another story. He thought back over two hundred years to the first attempts to colonize. Of an initial three hundred or so, over two-thirds had left within the first three years, and many of them had been insane when the ships took them home. Men came to Tanith, stayed, if they could endure it, but if they couldn't, and tried to stay anyway, they soon fled from the unendurable madness of its reality to a safer and more orderly madness of their own. From what he had heard, few of them were cured again, even back on terror. I've got to see Chang, he said. The colonists on Tanith tended to live well apart from each other, and unless they owned the new televisors designed especially for the planet, their only contact was physical. Once a month or so he would go to the planet's one town for supplies, and a mild spree, and somewhat oftener he would spend a while at home at another house, or have guests himself, but most of the time he had been alone. And as a man grew older, without loss of physical and mental faculties, he found more and more within himself an unfolding inward richness which none of the short-lived would ever appreciate or even comprehend. He had less need of other men to prop him up, or perhaps it was simply that the wisdom, the fullness which came with immortality, made a little of the other colonists' company go a long ways. There was no denying it. Eileen's twenty-three years of life could not compare with Langdon's two hundred or more. It was like a child, thoughtless, mentally and physically timid, ignorant, essentially shallow. But I love her. I can afford to wait. In fifty or a hundred years, she'll begin to grow up. In two hundred or so, we'll begin to understand each other. As our ages increase, the absolute difference between them will become proportionately insignificant. An immortal learns patience. I can wait, and meanwhile, I love her very dearly. What do you have to see him about? asked Eileen. Us, he answered bluntly. A uh, situation 
It isn't good. No, she whispered. Can't you learn that there's nothing to fear on Tanith? he asked. Death itself, the greatest dread of all, is gone. We've eliminated all actually dangerous life in the neighborhood of our settlements. There are things that can be annoying. Sword plants, the psyche feeders, the static discharges. But it's no trick to learn how to avoid them. Nothing here can hurt you, Eileen. I know, she said hopelessly. But I'm still afraid. Day and night I'm afraid. There are worse things than death, Joe. But afraid of what? I don't know. Fear itself, maybe. How do I know something won't suddenly be deadly? But I'm not afraid of death. Even with a baby I wouldn't be afraid of wild beasts or plague or anything that I could understand. She shook her shining head slowly. That's just it, Joe. I don't understand this planet. Nobody does. You don't. You admit it yourself. Some day I'll know it. When? A thousand years from now? A thousand years of horror? Joe, some of those things are so hideous I think I'll go mad when they appear. The deep-sea fish on terror is hideous. Not this way. These things aren't right. They can't exist. But still, there they are. And I can't forget them. And I never know when they'll appear next. Or what they'll be this time. She checked herself, gulping. This is a very beautiful world, he said stubbornly. The colors, the forms, the sound. None of them are right. Grass may look just as well when it's red or blue or yellow, but it shouldn't be all of them at different times. The sky is wrong. The trees are wrong. Those hideous lakes of life and the things in them. Obscene. Those voices singing out in the mists. Nobody knows what they are. Those images of things a hundred million years dead, and the faces and the whisperings, and there's always something watching and waiting and moving, just a little outside the corner of your eye. Oh, Joe, Joe, this place is haunted. She sobbed in his arms with a rising note of hysteria that she couldn't quite suppress. He looked grimly over her shoulder. A swirling, chiming mist of color formed on one corner of the room amorphous stirrings within it, a sudden shining birth that laughed and jeered and slipped out to the wall. He remembered that he had been frightened and repelled when he first came here, but not to this degree, but he soon got over it. Now, even while Eileen wept, he admired the shifting pulse of colors, and his heart quickened to the elfin bells. Terran music sounded wrong to him after two hundred years of the sounds of Tanith. He thought that all those voices and whisperings and singings, sliding up and down in inhuman scale, and the dreams and the visions, had a pattern, an overall immensity, which some day he would grasp, and that would be a moment of revelation. He would see and know the wholeness of Tanith, and there would be meaning in it, not the chaotic jumble of random events which made up the rest of the universe, death-doomed universe tumbling blindly toward a wreck of level entropy and ashen suns, but a glimpse of that ultimate purposefulness which some men called God. Briefly a temporal mirage showed beyond the window, a fragmentary glimpse of a tower reaching for the sky, and it was no work of man, nor could it ever be, but it was of a heartbreaking loveliness. He wondered about the ancient natives, had they simply become extinct, reached a point of declining evolutionary efficiency, 
such as seemed fated for all species, and gone into limbo some millions of years previously? Or had they, perhaps, finally seen the allness of the world and gone elsewhere? Privately, Langdon rather thought it was the latter, world without end. But Eileen was crying in his arms. He kissed her, and tasted salt on her lips that trembled under his. Poor kid, poor kid, and with a baby on the way. Something of the magic of their first days together came back to him. It was a disappointment in love which had sent him to Tanith in the first place, and for all his time here he had lived without that sort of affection. The women of the town served the casual needs of sex, which seemed to become less and less frequently manifest as his own undying personality grew in fullness and self-sufficiency, and that was all. Still, a single man was incomplete, and a year ago one of the few colony ships landed and Eileen had been aboard, and a forgotten springtime stirred within him. Now, well, she released herself, smiling with unsteady lips. I'll be all right now, dear, she said. Let's go. I have to talk this matter over privately with Jiang. His wife can take care of Eileen. Certainly I can't leave her here alone. But sooner or later he would have to. It wasn't only that he had to go out and oversee some of the fields, on which grew the native plants whose secretions, needed by Terran chemistry, gave them their livelihood. Solitude and long walks through the misty forests and over the whispering hills had become virtual necessities to him. The mighty thoughts of an immortal which no Terran could ever comprehend in his pathetic lifetime were being gestated in his brain. Slowly, piece by piece, the coherent philosophy, which is necessary for sanity, was coalescing within him, and he was gathering into himself the essence of Tanith. Someday, perhaps a thousand years hence, he would know what it was that haunted him now. He could not suppress a feeling of annoyance, however. Eileen had had over a year to adjust now, and she was getting worse instead of better. A brief sojourn in utter alienness might be merely pleasing and interesting, but over a longer time one either got used to it or... He'd have to learn, have to accept the sanity of Tanith, and know it for a deeper and more real one than the sanity of terror. Others had done it. Why couldn't she?